You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. Well, we are going to be turning to the book of First John. So if you have a Bible with you, we'd love for you to turn on over to the book of First John, right very close to the end of the New Testament. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to have one in your hand. And so if you don't have one, just put your, just put your hand up. We'll bring one to you. If you don't have a Bible at home, um, that is your gift from us to you. We want God's Word, His powerful, living, and active Word to be with you always. And so we are in the book of 1 John. We're going to be looking at verses 5 to 10, looking at a, the test of authenticity. Well, as you're turning in your Bibles here, Let me start out this morning by asking you about authenticity, about the importance of authenticity. Like, how much do we appreciate authenticity, right? True, legitimate, verifiable genuineness. You know, when when it comes to life, when it comes to purchasing products or collecting special things or investing in valuable items, how important is authenticity when you're doing those kinds of things? How, how important is authenticity to, to the, when you're opening your wallet to buy things in this world? Like, let's just say, for example, it comes down to buying a specific pair of jeans or a specific brand of clothing or product, right? We appreciate the authentic things, right? Like the Levi's or the Nike shoes. Like, we love these kinds of things, right? Or maybe it comes to even higher-end things in this world, like, like the purses or the wallets out there, like... Like maybe Gucci or Coach means something of authenticity, or or maybe the brand of watch somebody wears, like a Rolex or a, a Tag Ur. Even when it comes to jewelry, right? Authenticity. These things mean a big deal in our world. It's pretty important to our our global commerce together. When it comes to these things being sold, it's a big deal, whether it's real or whether it's fake, right? How important is authenticity? I mean. We're, if we go to markets or we go even, even shopping online and the marketplace is online, there are those who are creating cheap knockoffs, fake reproductions. If you've ever been to the flea market or whatever, you've seen those things. But authenticity is a, a big deal. In fact, in our global economy, when it comes to things that are not genuine, things that are fake, it actually costs our global economy about $300 billion a year. And so it's important that companies design their products and that they produce them as genuine products. And, and what they do with those is they put in marks of authenticity within their logos, within their, their labels, even to the point that you might get a certificate or a stamp that something's genuine or authentic, like a genuine diamond or, or genuine pure gold. And so we're kind of obsessed with authenticity when it comes to these things. And even with these products, as good as, as marks of authenticity can be, those things can also be reproduced. And so, really, the only way that you can produce or provide that something is authentic is to find somebody who is knowledgeable about the exact details and the characteristics of the real, genuine, authentic thing. So that then you can take what is suspect and you can take it towards the thing that is authentic and compare it to that, right? That comes, when we, when we look at counterfeit money, trying to, to see whether something's counterfeit, the experts don't study the fake, they actually study what is real, what is authentic, 
so that when they see what's fake, they can easily point out that it's not the real thing. And so friends, as we're going to the book of 1 John here again today, as as John is writing this letter to this church that, that had so recently experienced the influence of counterfeit faith, fraudulent teaching, which was destroying their church, John is now going to push back against the false teaching that may be prevailing, and he's starting out by examining with, with that which is absolutely authentic. Right, right from, from verse 1 in chapter 1, it was, it was all about what they saw, what they heard, what they touched, right? That is what is authentic. And if our lives don't line up with him, we ought to have some questions. And maybe we should even be concerned. And so as John's main purpose of writing this book is that we may know that we have eternal life. It's about assurance. It's about certainty. And that certainty can be found in the marks of God's authenticity that should be stamped upon our life. And so let's read verses 5 to 10 here this morning, and then we will pray. 1 John 1, 5 to 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Let's pray. Father, we are gathered in your name here this morning. We're gathered because of the blood of Jesus Christ, the righteousness that he has justified to us as he rose from the grave, and as he also ascended to heaven and filled us with your spirit. Lord, we are your church, we are your body, we are your members, and we come to you to worship you here this morning, and we come here to hear from you here this morning. As our Bibles are open, we pray that our hearts would be open to receive, that our eyes would see the glory of God, that that we would hear of the truth and the righteousness and the purity of Jesus Christ alone, and that even through this text, we would touch the living Savior, that God is light, and that in him. There is no darkness at all. So we pray that as we look into the mirror of your word here this morning, as we look into 1 John, as as we see the reflection of ourselves back in light of who you are, we do pray that there would be marks of authenticity, of just growing in Christ-likeness here this morning, and that you would grow us all the more. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So again, friends, as we look at the book of 1 John, it's like looking into a mirror. It's a test of authentic faith, right? We compare ourselves to the standard, and how we live will either verify or it will nullify what we say that we believe. And so as John starts out in this examination process for this beloved church, as any good authenticator would do, he starts out with the prototype. He starts out with what's real, the real, true, authentic one. The one from last week in verse 1 that he and the apostles heard and saw and touched. He starts out with God himself. 
that there is only one who is the authentic truth and that God is the radiantly pure and righteous standard. God is the radiantly pure and righteous standard. As he states so clearly, starting here in verse 5, he says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. Right? Just like that refrain from the first four verses about hearing and then proclaiming, he's now saying that the message that he heard from Christ himself, from the Lord, he is now preaching, he is now heralding, he is now proclaiming to the church. And the message is this, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. Friends, if we are truly seeking to be authentic, we must first hear this message. We must hear this theology. We must hear the truth that as we look into the mirror of God's word here, that the supreme and preeminent truth that is the ultimate standard for all of us to be comparing ourselves to is not the world, it's not each other, No, the standard that we compare ourselves to when it comes to authenticity is the very and only authentic one, God himself. And the standard and quality of God that we are to compare ourselves to, as John says here, is that he is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And so it all starts out with theology. The examination of the very character of God himself And what we see here being so highlighted at the very beginning of this section is that God is light. God is light. Now, we may all just think about that phrase and think, yeah, I agree with that. I I, I sing that. Maybe we've heard that in church or we've sung that in a song. But really, what does that mean? What does it mean that God is light? So, friends, before we can even begin to compare ourselves with the idea that God is light, we have to understand what it means that he is light. So notice first that John doesn't say that God is like a light, nor does he say that God is a light. No, he says without a definite article in the Greek that God is light. He's speaking about the quality of God's very character, that God can be characterized by light. This is something about who he really is and something that he thoroughly is. Friends, to say that God is light speaks about God's very person and character. And this character isn't just isolated to John's theology, but this is the character of God as revealed throughout a whole biblical theology of Scripture. That God is described as being a God of light throughout the whole Bible. Now, there are way too many examples to recount here this morning, but some of the most obvious are found even in the beginning of the Old Testament Remember how Genesis started out with, in the beginning, God. But what's the first thing that he said? He said, let there be light. That's the first thing he speaks. And there was light, right? Genesis 1-3. Or then as you look into the book of Exodus, as, as God is saving the Israelites from Egypt, right? He revealed himself in his glory as he led them as a pillar of fire by night to give them light. Or even think as Moses coming down from Mount Sinai with the afterglow of God's Shekinah glory, his light upon his face. All throughout Scripture, when the Bible talks about the nature of God and his very presence, it often speaks about light. 
Just as the psalmist says in Psalm 27.1, The Lord is my salvation and my light. Or Psalm 36.9, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Friends, light is the way God often presents himself to his people. Psalm 104 says, You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. So light is the way that God chooses to reveal himself in his majesty to his people. Now, this isn't just true in the Old Testament. This is how the New Testament speaks of him as well, especially when it comes to Jesus. As John so eloquently writes in his gospel, he testified, Jesus testified in John 1, 4 to 9, or, or John is testifying, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, remember that, true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So as God from eternity past now reveals himself cloaked in light, he then sent his son to save us, Jesus himself, who is characterized by life. Even as Jesus said about himself in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Even as he revealed himself on the Mount of Transfiguration to Peter, James, and John in Matthew 17, too. I don't think you have it up there, but it says, He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. This is the, the glory of his deity peeling forth into our world, shining forth the glory of God, of who he is. And then you just go to the end of the, of the Bible. You go to the book of Revelation and you hear about the New Jerusalem, that this is a city that has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So friends, the biblical theology about God's presence in the Scriptures is going to reveal to you over and over again that where God is, He reveals Himself in glorious, blinding, shining light, that God is light. But again, what does that mean? What does that have to do with being authentic? Well, as God, according to the Scriptures, is light, and as to be light speaks about His character, to be light speaks very specifically about His character of both truth and righteousness. Light speaks both intellectually and morally about who God is. John Stott comments on this text. He says, Intellectually, light is truth and darkness is ignorance or error. Morally, light is purity and darkness evil. So as God is proclaimed here to be light, it speaks both of the, his personification of pure truth and then the model of who he is in perfect, pure righteousness and that he is the standard and that he is also the source of both. That in a world of darkness, as Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Right? This is his character that is being revealed, and it's always revealed through his, wor his word. That his way, his character way through the darkness is himself. He is the light. That I am the way, the truth, and the, the life. 
right? He doesn't just say here that I know the way. He doesn't just say that I know the truth. No, these things are who he is, and light represents these qualities in him. But the problem that we face as as a humanity in our fallen sin is that as he is perfectly and naturally pure light, we are naturally dark and evil. And we tend to confuse what is dark and light ourselves, what is good and evil, as the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah said in, in Isaiah 5.20, he said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Sounds a lot like our world today. No, as God is light, the light speaks about His absolute radiant character of both eternal truth and pure righteousness. That as John says, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. No, friends, where there is pure light, darkness has no room to exist. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, John 1.5. And so, friends, John is starting out here by giving us the absolute standard, the measuring rod, that we must measure all of our claims of authenticity against, that God is the radiantly pure and righteous standard. So this means, friends, that we don't measure our authenticity by comparing ourselves to the world. We don't look at the lost and the lowly and the despondent and say, well, at least I'm not like them. I mean, look at how far gone they are. You know, we don't look at the depraved and the darkness of society and the world and say, look at how bad they are and look at them in comparison to me. I'm, I'm actually coming up pretty shiny when I compare myself to the world. We also don't look at each other in the church comparing ourselves to other Christians, compiling our lists of good qualities in comparison to theirs. You know, whoever rises to the top is now our new standard. We don't measure ourselves against our brothers and sisters and say to ourselves, well, I know that I have a little work to, done, to be done, but look at them. they got a long ways to go. You know, I'm doing much better than they are. We don't look down our spiritual noses at one another. Or on the other side, we also don't idolize our Christian heroes either. Man, if I could just be like Jonathan Edwards or Martin Luther, or maybe even more recently, John Piper, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul. I mean, yes, these are, these are good models to look up to for sure, but they are not the standard. No, friends, they are all far from the standard. The standard we must measure ourselves to is to be no one else than the very God who is the most brilliant, the most perfect, the most radiant, the most true and pure light ever, the perfect one, the only perfect standard, God himself. Right? God never said, be holy as they are holy. Right? Be holy as this guy is holy. Be holy as this woman is holy. No, he said, be holy for I am holy. He is the standard. And so on the outset of this section, John establishes that the absolute standard of authenticity is himself, which then sets the framework for him now confronting some of the lingering false claims that are hanging on in this Ephesian church. 
He's going to confront some false claims. And actually, when you're looking at the Scriptures, you can see them identified here. In verse 6, it says, if we say. In verse 8, it says, if we say. In verse 10, it says, if we say. These are, these are truth claims that they are making, but they are false claims according to the Word of God. And he's going to confront each one of these very specific false teachings of the day. And the first one here has to do with the connection between fellowship and walking. Fellowship and walking. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So key word here, friends, is fellowship and walking. How although we may be saying one thing, our actions are going to either validate or invalidate that which we are, complain- or, are claiming. And he's going to connect that to authentic fellowship. Friends, to truly belong to the light is to truly walk in the light. To truly belong to the light is to truly walk in the light. And so the first thing John engages here with these, with these false claims that were being propagated by the false teachers of that day, that one's fellowship with God was somehow disconnected from one's behavior. That they were teaching that our true belonging and communion with God is really kind of unaffected by our actions to the extent that even some of them were involving themselves in darkness. That's why he says, if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. You see, if you remember that the heretical teaching that, that they were likely experiencing was, was falling within the lines of a, a growing Gnosticism of that time, you remember that they believed that those who were truly saved, they had some kind of an inside track, right? They had some kind of a special knowledge that it wasn't really about the physical but the spiritual Therefore, it didn't matter about what was happening on the outside. It would matter what was happening on the inside with the Spirit, right? They believed that the, the flesh was evil, right? All matter was evil. And what really only mattered, what was going on within your spirit as you were receiving some kind of a special spiritual knowledge and insight. And so what we see happening with this false theology is that there was a severe disconnect with what they said and what they did. And they were okay with that. It's like those who may look really good on Sundays. Right? They dress the dress. They talk the talk. They walk the walk. They look the part. But then come Monday through Saturday, you'd have no clue that they claimed to even be Christians. And friends, I think it's a bigger problem than we even know. In my own life, there was a time in my life where I claimed to be a believer, and I would go to church on Sunday morning, but the rest of the week, I, I really didn't look like much of a Christian. As a teenager, I claimed to be a Christian, but yet I was so steeped in sin, sneaking behind my parents' back, getting involved in all kinds of sinful behavior, And that bled into my adulthood life as well. Sin then became habitual and continual and enslaving. That if you were to compare my devotion to God and my devotion to sin, my devotion to sin would easily win. And that's what John 
is meaning what's going on here when he talks about walking in darkness. Walking in the Bible speaks about that which we are truly following and that's resulting in our true living. Right? Not, not walking in the light as God is light, but, but walking in darkness, walking in evil. Friends, what the, what the Scripture says when it comes to, to walking is it, it speaks about that which is characterizing you, that which is typifying you, that which is marking your overall character, that which you are habitually and continually living out. Now, we need to be careful when we study the book of John we need to be careful to understand that what John, what he means and what he doesn't mean. We need to be careful to not read from the book of John that we're supposed to be perfect and that we are, we're never going to sin. That's not the message of John at all. No, in fact, in chapter 2, John says in, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But what does he say next? He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now in John's theology, sin is a reality for believers. But what he's getting at is the idea that we just can't wantonly sin because of our security in Christ. That's a false claim. That's a false ideology, a false theology. Right? That just because of Christ's justifying blood, I can do whatever I want and still have fellowship with God. Friends, this is what we call antinomianism. No laws, no rules. That because of Jesus, I don't need to heed the command of Scripture because in Jesus, I'm free to do all that I want. Friends, this is an extreme, hyper view. That as Jesus said in, in in John 10, 28, he said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's true. Or in, in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If we're just believing those saying that, hey, we've got the security, therefore we can sin all we want, we've got a false theology. They're taking these texts of such great assurance and promise and are applying them to their lives with no regard to the command to follow Jesus. In fact, in both of these texts, the surrounding context is about obeying and following Christ. Like, I like the truth, but I deny the following, right? I want Jesus as my Savior, but not so much as my Lord. I love the indicative, yet I despise the imperative Friends, this is false theology. And friends, this is what we naturally do. Why? Because we love the darkness. We naturally love the darkness. Again, John 3, 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. We're naturally fallen. We're, we're naturally evil. So John's theology is not about perfection, that's for sure, but it's definitely about a rejection of the lie that you can live a life that is characterized by darkness and sin and yet still be in fellowship with God. And friends, we've got to get a handle on this. As great as it is to profess your faith, your overall walking is going to either validate or invalidate where you truly are. 
If you say you're following Jesus, but in reality your overall life, both evident and in secret, is characterized by habitual, ongoing, enslaving sin, if you have an overall infatuation with evil things and the deeds of darkness, if these things are in control of your heart, while Jesus has no power over your heart, you are walking in darkness and you are lying and you're not practicing the truth. F.F. Bruce says, Orthodoxy of, do of doctrine is no substitute for righteousness of life. Truth in the inward being, Psalm 51, 6, is what God desires in his people. And where that is present, it will manifest itself in all the ways of life. And so this is a massive warning shot coming over the bow for some of the lingering false teaching that is remaining in Ephesus. And it's a warning for us as well. It's a negative warning. Now, with the negative warning here, John then immediately answers in the positive, as he says in verse 7, but if we walk in the light, right, as opposed to walking in the, in the darkness, if we walk in the light, meaning that we're living a life that is characterized as willingly walking with and obeying Jesus, again, friends, not perfection, but it's an overall growing context conduct of Christ-likeness. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, right? God is light. He is the light of truth and righteousness. When we walk in that light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Friends, the result of walking in the light is that, first, we get to walk in the light. We get to walk with God. We get to follow Jesus. That's fellowship with God. Second, we, we have fellowship with one another. Friends, one of the major results and evidences of walking in the light proves itself in the reality that we are walking with each other as you partner with the body of Christ. Amen? Amen. And then thirdly, the result of walking in the light is that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin, that this is an ongoing walking together in the light with God and with each other, that not only does the blood of Christ save us, but it continues to cleanse us, to cleanse us of all of our sin, right? As we have been forgiven all of our sin, God works continually to cleanse us of our sin in this life right now, right? That's the eternal life we talked about last week. It's a life of growing more and more like Jesus, less of me, more of Christ. I must decrease. He must increase until that final day when, he, when we either die or he comes to take us home when we will be glorified and free, free from sin. So John's talking about authentic fellowship and how it's marked in our walking. And so we examine ourselves according to that standard. So in that, we need to be looking at what we give ourselves to. We look at all that we're concerning ourselves with. What's consuming a lot of my time? What's, what's consuming a lot of space in my heart? 
We look at where we spend our time, where, where we spend our energy, where we, where we spend our life. We look at where our hearts are going to to find satisfaction and fulfillment. And we also look at the fruit that is being produced in us, and we start looking, is there, is there an overall character that is marked by the person of Jesus Christ? Is my life more consumed with me, or is it consumed with Him? Am I more consumed with the world or with the Lord? Do I look more like Jesus, or do I look like the world? Am I walking in darkness, or am I walking in the light? To truly belong to the light is to walk in the light. Now, the second and third false claims that John addresses head on here has nothing to do with the license to sin, but rather it's a denial of sin. And this denial comes in the form of either self-righteousness or it's just an outright denial of our depravity altogether. And again, they're both marked with the phrase, if we say. So look at verse 8 and verse 10. If we say we have no sin. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. John's talking about authentic redemption. To truly be forgiven is to truly walk in confession. So worse than the idea that one can sin and have it not affect their fellowship with God, this second and third heresy is even worse because it's a flat-out denial of sin. That a person can be either sinless of their own accord, self-righteousness, or that this whole idea of having a sinful nature isn't really a thing, right? Verse 8 says, if we say we have no sin. So the false teaching that was corrupting and splitting this church was a faulty hamartiology, the theology of sin. It's a faulty theology about the nature of sin and man. So first, this false idea that someone can arrive at some kind of a place of sinlessness, that somehow they have eradicated all sources and abilities of sin in their life. Now again, when we think about the Gnostic teaching at that time, as they taught that the flesh was evil and the spirit was good, that it was when they would receive their, sp their special secret knowledge of God, that with it, the flesh can become what the Spirit already is, they would believe in an over-realized justification of Jesus Christ. That both my justification and my sanctification can arrive at a place of perfect righteousness. Now we know justification is Christ's righteousness applied. Perfect righteousness cannot be taken away. Yet as we live our life, there is a practical growing righteousness. Right? We're not perfect here. But we are growing in the perfection of God. We'll never arrive perfect here. It's not until we arrive in glory that we are made the righteousness that we are declared. So it was positional righteousness, but they had their practical righteousness wrong. That as their spirit is pure from some kind of a special impartation, 
that the humanity could be freed from the effects of sin and that they experience perfection right now. But I don't know where they get that idea. It definitely is not found in Scripture. Now, as you look throughout this book from beginning to end, what do you see? Wherever man is, there is sin. That even the greatest patriarchs from Adam to Noah to Abraham and to David, as they are all men of God in the Scriptures, they are also men who struggled with sin. For example, our, our guys in our regroups just this past week, we, we studied David. And he was a man after God's own heart. He, he was the greatest king. He's even the greatest Christ-life fig, figure in the Old Testament. But when this man was faced with temptation, he commits adultery, which leads to murder, and he basically breaks every one of the Ten Commandments. So this idea of attaining sinlessness is something absolutely foreign to the Bible. I mean, just think about Paul in, in Romans seven nineteen to 20, where he says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Paul struggled with sin. Friends, the real reality is that although we are believers, we still sin. Although our salvation is not a license to sin, the reality is that we will sin until the day that we die. I mean, just think about this past month. Think about this past week. Just think about even just this morning. Think about how much we sin. That moment that you're, you're cut off in traffic and you mumble something rude under your breath. Think about when you watch the news, and this is me, and my heart begins to boil. You know, whatever politician that you're not a fan of. Think about the myriad of temptations you just walked through this past week and what you ended up doing with them. Think about the things that the Lord God has called you to do and commanded you to do, but yet you put it off until next week. Just think about it all. Not perfect. Not perfect yet. Far from it. That even though the Lord has been working in your heart and you've been growing in certain areas, sin is like that whack-a-mole game, right? You, you hit one and something else pops up. I don't know how anyone even back in those days could stray with, say with a straight face, I have no sin. In fact, there are even some Christian circles today that teach this false theology, attaining a level of sinless perfection. If you've ever heard of Charles Wesley in his holiness theology, which is adhered to by many Wesleyan holiness churches today, many you know, Pentecostal churches and others, his theology taught that one could arrive at a special place of what he called sinless perfection, Christian perfection. That as one grows in the knowledge and the faith of Christ, that they can receive a special impartation of the Holy Spirit, often called the second baptism, that then removes your inclination towards sin, that you're going to no longer desire it, and you're going to no longer willingly commit it. Christian perfectionism. It teaches these three things. The first two are great. Justification pardons the guilt of sin. Amen. New birth overcomes the, the power and the rule of sin. Amen. 
But third, Christian perfection removes being of sin, an inclination to sin. Now, they twist all kinds of verses to try and support this view, but friends, the the plain and most obviously reality for those who proclaim this is staring right back at them in the morning in the mirror. That no matter what I say, sin still remains. And so what Paul says to these false theologies is that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Friends, as God is light, he is the light of truth. And wrong theology is offensive to the very truth that he is. Those would have to do a lot of dancing and twisting to come and read now First John, right? No, friends, we have to have a right theology of ongoing sin. Or else, as the text says, we're going to deceive ourselves. Which brings us to the other sin error, the other false claim here, which is the idea that sin isn't even a thing. Verse 10 says, if we say we have not sinned. What this false teaching is saying is that really man is not sinful by nature. And this is probably the most blatant of all three of these errors. That as God so clearly reveals throughout this Bible from beginning to end that sin is our greatest problem, right? That as Adam and Eve disobeyed, right? Sin came into the world. And then even in their own son, Cain, right? Committing murder. Remember, what did God say to him before that? Sin is crouching at the door. You have to rule over it. That what we have seen through the book of, of Genesis is over and over again. Where we are, there is sin. Romans 3 says, you know, bolds, so boldly declares that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. No one does good, not even one. So to say that we have not sinned is an outright rejection of the very truth of God as revealed in the Scriptures, and it is the very rejection of the whole reason Christ had to come here and save us. Right? If there is no sin, Christ wouldn't have had to have come. Well, the truth is that just as the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So friends, if we say that we aren't sinners, is to both deceive ourselves, but ultimately worse, as verse 10 says, it says we make God a liar. And his word is not in us. Exactly. When the Word of God is not in you, you're going to arrive at all kinds of false ideas and you're going to make a liar out of God. So it comes down to biblical literacy. Right? You can't read this book and not see your utter need of salvation. That there is an overwhelming problem of sin in the world. Now what John says directly to these false ideas of sin in verse 9 is that instead of being sin deniers, we desperately need to be sin confessors. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So stop deceiving yourself. Stop making 
a liar out of God. Stop saying that you have no sin or that you have not sinned. Stop denying sin altogether, but rather confess your sin. Friends, authentic redemption is found in confession. To truly be forgiven is to truly walk in confession. As we were talking about David, you fast forward to Psalm 51, you see his true, authentic confession. Psalm 51, 3 to 4, for he says this, For I know my transgressions, my sins, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and, and done what is evil in your sight. He's confessing it to God. Right? I can't deny it to God as I look in the mirror. I see my lawlessness. I see my sinfulness. I see my transgressions. And God, I confess it to you. Friends, this is what it means to be authentic. It's when you see the real you. It's when you stand downwind of yourself and take a good whiff. Let me ask you, do you see it? Do you see it regularly? Do you see it in God's Word? Do you also see that he so kindly and generously gave you the mirror? He gave you the measuring rod. He gave you the Bible to stop deceiving ourselves and making God out to be a liar. And so we need to just stop. We need to confess. We need to confess our pride. We need to confess our anger, confess our lusts, confess our coveting, confess our idolatry, our adultery, our fear, our worries, our love of self, we need to confess it all and continue to confess. We live in light of this statement that if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, in the Lord's kindness to sinners, sinners who don't deserve it, Upon confession of our sin, we can be totally forgiven, completely forgiven, and then also further cleansed of our unrighteousness. The same unrighteousness even revealed in our faulty beliefs. Friends, God is in the, begin, in the business of saving and sanctifying sinners like you and like me. That as we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that if we believe in our hearts, God raised him from the dead. We can be saved. And then for those of us who continually walk in the confession of our faith, realizing that our justification, we are saved perfectly in Christ, we can have that ongoing assurance that John is talking about that we may know that we have eternal life. And friends, that eternal life begins right now. We are to continue to grow more and more in the likeness of Jesus Christ, being authentic followers of Him. And so the question is, is have we truly confessed and repented of our sin? But are we also just continually repenting and confessing? That's the life of a Christian. Yes, our salvation is secure in the justification of Jesus Christ alone if we are truly in Him, but we also walk in our life in confession and repentance because of out of gratitude. We don't just look to ourselves when we fall. Yes, we see ourselves when we fall, when we sin. We own it. That's our responsibility. But we get up and we look at the justification 
of Jesus Christ. It's because of his perfect righteousness that I can even get up and even confess and even repent. And so as we take the test here along with 1 John, as we walk through this book together, we ask ourselves, are we measuring ourselves against the world or against each other? Or are we measuring ourselves against what is absolutely pure authenticity in the person, God, who is light, the one whom there is no darkness at all, and that it's when we are found in him through initial confession and repentance, we are found in faith. We could never remove ourselves from his hand, but as true, authentic believers, we continue to follow. We continue to confess as followers of Jesus Christ. So it comes down to authentic truth. He is the radiantly pure and righteous standard. An authentic fellowship. To truly belong to the light is to truly walk in the light, right? Not perfection, but walking in the light of Christ. Authentic redemption, to truly be forgiven, is to truly walk in confession. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that your, your word is clear, that John is bold, that John doesn't hold any punches, that he goes directly for the heart. We thank you that he has revealed to us, that your Holy Spirit writing through him, that you have revealed to us yourself, our perfect, pure, righteous, true standard that we are to be holy as you are holy. That even as we look at our own life and as we see that, that we do fall short, that we continue to sin, that there still is this life of confession, a life of repentance, a life of fellowship with you and with others. And we do pray that you would continually be fashioning us even further into the image of Jesus Christ that you would receive all the glory that is due your name. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.